Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. If you have a garden, then at this point in the season, you're probably starting to harvest some of the goodies that you've been growing. And you might be wondering, how can you save a lot of these foods so that you have access to them throughout the entire year? So in this episode, I am bringing Melissa K. Norris back onto the show to talk with us about how to preserve food so that we have food throughout the entire year from our gardens. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And if you remember back to episode 114, Melissa came on and talked to us about how to grow a garden from scratch and how to successfully grow these plants so that they're producing as much food as possible. Now, once you grow the food, then you're going to want to know how to then save and preserve the food, which is what we'll be covering in this episode. But back in 114, we have a lot of good resources on how to have that successful garden grow for you, different companion plants to plant with your plants to protect them from predators and pests. So definitely go check out that episode if you want to make sure that your garden is set up for success. And in this episode, all about preserving, we're going to have a lot of different links to some of Melissa's different uh, programs and courses, such as her canning class that she has. So if you want to support the show, then head on over to summitforwellness.com slash 154. And we have links in the show notes there to all of these different offers that Melissa has. Also, coming up, I will be harvesting a bunch of honey in the next couple weeks here. So our bees have been working very hard. And if you want to get some honey, then head on over to mountainsideherbals.com, which is where you can put yourself down for pre-orders of our honey. All of our honey was sold out in four hours last year. This year, we should have a lot more honey available. I'm estimating at least 200, possibly 300 pounds in the first batch. So go ahead and get your name on that list if you want to get some of our local honey to the Snoqualmie Valley. Other than that, let's head on over to my conversation with Melissa. Thank you, Melissa, for coming back onto the show. Yeah, I am thrilled to be back. Thanks for having me. Of course. And last time you were on, it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. So that was about 12 plus months ago. And so we were talking about how people can get started with gardening and uh, different ways to have a successful garden, because a lot of people were looking into gardening and uh, they were trying to figure out, you know, how can I grow my own food when there is a potential food shortage? That was uh, one of those things that a lot of people were fearful of. So in that time between the beginning of the pandemic and now, I would love to know if you came up with any new revelations around homesteading and gardening and food prep um, between now and then. Yeah. You know, it has been, you said it's only, you said 12 months. I'm like, it's only been 12 months. Part of me feels like it's been a bit of a lifetime (laughs) Um, (laughs) since then. But we have actually, it's been really interesting. We have increased the amount of food that we're growing. We actually added in an entire another gardening space and we brought on more livestock. And not because 
we're fearful that we're going to have a complete economic or food system breakdown per se. Um, but we really were looking at the way we were spending our time and the way that we were using our property and our land. And for example, my husband was mowing our front yard because we have still a decent amount of space of grass in our front yard right next to where the orchard is at. And he's like, man, I am spending during the summer months how many hours actually mowing this grass? You know, so there's the time expense, there's the gas for your lawnmower, all of those things. And we really started looking at it in ways of how can we make this area work more for us and actually produce food rather than just lawn. And yes, in our lawn, we have dandelions, which of course are a wild thing that you can harvest and forage. But let's be realistic. There's only so much dandelions you are going to eat, um, at least for most of us. So we had more than we needed. So we decided that we also would love to do more things locally. I think looking at the pandemic and seeing that there was breakdown in supply chains. I mean, we even saw the ransomware attack on the East Coast. We happened to actually be in Tennessee when that happened on the East Coast. And so oh, you wow. had this breakdown of fuel. We didn't even know, like, are we going to have enough fuel in this rental car to get back to the airport? Are the airplanes going to have enough fuel to fly home? I mean, lots of, of things. And so having things locally is, I feel, even more important um, as time moves on for lots of reasons. So we decided that we are going to take that yard space that has just been being mown and the kids use the backyard. We use the backyard for recreation and fun, but the front part, we don't really. So we decided that we are going to be raising meat birds, not just for ourselves, which we've been doing for a number of years, but actually raise them and offer them to people in our community um, as a food source. And then that will use our front lawn. The birds will eat the grass. We have them in a chicken tractor, so we move them around. And so therefore, we're not spending time mowing. And what was lawn is now feeding chickens that are also going to feed local community members or people within our local sphere. Um, and so we've, you know, breaking down that chain. So we're now looking, and once you start really looking at things that way and not just producing for your own self, which is awesome, but also serving those around you, maybe it's just family and friends, maybe it's doing like, a, you know, a little local CSA or, you know, selling things as a community farmer's market, whatnot. Um, it just really changed the way that we evaluated and looked at our lands and the way that we're kind of moving forward with things. So I felt like we had a huge revelation. <laughs> Um, and that, that was kind of the, the, the big part of it. I love it. I think uh, community stuff like that is so important. I noticed last year with so many people gardening, um, and friends gardening and all sorts of stuff, we had more people to talk with about this is working really well. This wasn't working very well. So I did this to change it up. And then everybody had so much extra supplies that we all kind of were trading stuff around, uh, with other people because, you know, if you're not going to use it, you might as well give it to someone else that can use it. So I love that it brought about more of that community fuel that you're talking about. Yeah. And I think without being able to, well, I shouldn't say, I don't know, it, obviously this is all going to depend on where you live and what time frame. but for a lot of people, they didn't have the ability to go to town or to go to big meeting places or gathering places that they had in the past. And so there was a lot of feeling of isolation. And so being able to reach out to your neighbors and people who are right next 
door to you or right down the street for you or whatever. I feel like that was more important. And even though things are opening up more so, at least right now at the time of this recording where we live, I feel like people are valuing those relationships more so and realizing the importance of them within a small community for times as such as we just went through. Right. Totally. Now, um, in the last few weeks up here, we had an unprecedented heat wave that we've never gone through before. We broke every single record in the book. And um, I'm very curious because last time we talked a little bit about preserving food, which we're going to talk a lot more about today. But one of the things you had brought up was curing different uh, produce. And if we get a week maybe two weeks every now and then of 85-ish degree weather, then that works really well for curing. And we were saying how that rarely ever happens. <laughs> and now we had 110 plus degree weather. It's been 80 degrees ever since. So it seems like, uh, I don't know if someone was listening into that conversation and trying to help us out, but it's a little early to have that type of temperatures. But what happened with your garden with all of that heat? And what type of things did you do to... Uh, protect the garden and make sure that everything was still able to successfully grow. Yeah, great. Yeah, we actually hit up here in the foothills on our back porch. We got 120 degrees Fahrenheit is what we topped out on Whoa. that day. It was insane. Um, this time of year, unfortunately, it hit so early that most of the things that you would cure are not on yet in the garden because you're looking at mm. potatoes. Um, onions, garlic, and ours weren't, re when we had that, it was in June. And so it was a little too early for those crops here for us. Um, winter squash, those types of things really benefit from curing, but that's usually not until, you know, uh, moving into July for the, September. yeah, July, September, July for the garlic crop, onions, usually August, and then on into September. So yeah, it was a little too early, but um, interestingly, so when I, we knew that the heat was coming is we we're making sure everything was watered really, really well. Um, even during the day, if things started to look stressed, I would go ahead and water them. But we were able to water overnight really well, which is obviously better when you're having those high temps because water you're putting down during the day when it's that hot is going to evaporate off. So we focused on watering really well at night. Um, a lot of the garden and my high tunnel, I was really worried about the high tunnel because even with all of the doors open there, it still has plastic covering. I couldn't move it. The Everything was in ground inside the high tunnel. They were too mature for me to be able to dig up and move all of it. But that adds another 10 to 15 degrees um, inside that high tunnel, which typically we need that for tomatoes and peppers here. So I didn't know how they would fare. But what was interesting is I had mulched very heavily with wood chips. And so even during the day when it was 115, 120, the one day I could put my hands down beneath the wood chips and put my finger into the soil to make sure one, that it was still wet. But because the wood chip layer was so thick of the mulch, the soil down where the roots were was still cool. So because the roots stayed cool, the tomatoes and peppers came through just fine. It didn't, it didn't overly stress them. So that was a big revelation to me on truly how much of a difference mulch can make. So when I discovered that, that was like the first day. And then I kept checking it every single day through there. I went out to the portions of the garden that I don't have wood chipped yet that do have um, some bare soil and any weeds that were growing, I chopped them 
and I left the weeds on top of the dirt and would kind of put them around the base of any of the plants, the weeds that I had just pulled, to act as a mulch, like just some type of mulch because that bare soil, I could feel a huge difference touching the bare soil outside that didn't have anything on it. It was very, very hot and warm compared to anything that was mulch, which meant the roots were getting hot and drying out faster. So I actually used the weeds <laughs> to my advantage. I used those as a mulch um, on any of the other plants, kept the watering, um, and that was kind of the majority. I didn't have shade cloth. Um, I did move our chicken tractor actually in front of some of my elderberries that I didn't want to get scorched. Um, and so I used that to kind of create shade, but I didn't put up like actual shade cloths. Um, and everything in the garden vegetable wise came through really well. Where we did see some loss was the apple trees uh, because the apples got sun scald just because we got so hot. Like once you reach those temperatures, even apples that were um, underneath leaf canopy still within the tree, we could, did get some sun scald on those. So I estimate I probably had to remove and lost probably close to a third of the apple harvest, honestly, from from that. And that's just kind of an un unavoidable loss. Um, the blueberries, that heat was so hot coming on that it did affect some of the blueberries that were beginning to get ripe. Thankfully, there was still a lot of green berries and they were okay, but the ones that were just starting to ripen over that weekend, all of them just, it was almost like they rotted overnight. It was the weirdest thing. I'd never, I've never seen it before, but they don't normally get 120 degrees blueberries ever either. So, uh, so the blueberry <laughs> blueberry crop was really impacted as well. Um, but interestingly enough, like the plums, because they weren't ripe yet, cherries loved it. They did phenomenal. Um, the peaches are still forming. It didn't harm them at all. The raspberries did fine. They just ripened a little bit earlier. So I'll be interesting to see more on the perennials um, if we have any loss, just because it did get so hot that we won't see, like they just won't come back next year. And it was from the heat stress of this year, even though we've tried to keep up on the watering. So I, I feel like we actually did pretty good, but I feel that there may be some loss that we just won't see. It won't be evident until fall or even next spring, probably. Yeah, it's definitely tough because when you have such a large amount of uh, 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 garden space like what you have, it's... I mean, you're probably working on that all day long, just trying to keep it alive in that type of heat. Yeah. Well, in the morning, if we didn't do anything in the afternoon, <laughs> it was so yeah, hot. We were now. like, we were <laughs> hiding. Uh, we, we were freezing. We don't have air conditioning because normally you don't ever need it here. And so we were freezing wet washcloths and towels in the deep freezer and then like wrapping them around the neck because the hot inside the house was cooler than outside because you didn't have the direct sun, but it still got really hot. But yeah, evening and mornings were spent all on the garden and watering it, including, you know, the livestock, everything. We were spraying down the chickens because they don't sweat. They're like a dog. We were spraying down the cows. It like, yeah, it was something I hope to never go through again, honestly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I was up at like 435 every single day working in the garden and outside. And then again, starting at like 9 PM, going back through and trying to water everything. And, yeah. um, and, spread out through the day working on the animals as well, just like you said, to keep them cool because they're not really used to that stuff. The chickens did surprisingly very well. I thought they would have a hard time. I saw a little tiny bit of beaks open, them overheating, but uh, it didn't take much to bring them back down to a nice temperature. So it, it was definitely a rough one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. We had, <laughs> well, I had talked about getting, you know, meat birds and using the lawn. So we had got 
four days, we had four day old, um, 55 meat bird chickens, chicks, but they were only four Ooh. days old. So they seem to be more effective. We did end up losing three, but I was actually really, I was surprised that we didn't lose more. So I'm like, hmm, that probably wasn't the best timing, but I thought that was pretty good odds just because, I mean, you know, like infants, anything with infants are so much more susceptible to temperatures. They can't regulate as well as adults. Um, anyways, so we, the, but my adult hens, like none of them, we seem, they seem to, just like you said, like a few panting open beaks, but we just misted them down and then they were good. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Three out of 55. That's not terrible loss overall. Yeah. No, I was, I was surprised it wasn't more. So yeah. <laughs> so now let's start diving into uh, preservation of food. Can you talk a little bit about different types and different ways of preserving food for the long term? Yeah, there's actually a lot of ways to preserve food for the long term. Now, some of them are going to seem really obvious. A deep freezer. Obviously, we can, you know, deep freeze, you can freeze produce in it anywhere, you know, from three, six, nine, even up to a year. I've had, we keep produce and as long as it's not freezer burnt, it's just fine. So definitely using your deep freezer. And that's something most people have a freezer and have access to. Of course, you're limited to the space within the freezer. It does require electricity. Um, so it's, you know, we do use that for some things. Um, next up is going to be canning. One of the beautiful things about canning is your food is shelf stable and it's best used within 12 to 18 months. It's not that it becomes unsafe after then. It's just like with any food, you start to have the longer it goes, a breakdown of nutrient, flavor, nutrition, all of those just slowly begin to lessen and lessen and lessen after time. So within 12 to 18 months is ideal. But as I said, it's on the shelf, no electricity required. It's 100% shelf stable. So that's really nice. And as long as you can get canning jars and lids, which for some folks, depending on where, where you were, and even now, sometimes it was hard getting those or they would sell out really quickly. But you have the ability to store a fairly large volume of food with canning. And then you have dehydrating, which again, is going to give you a really long shelf life. It's completely stable. It's lightweight. It's easy to pack if you're going on trips, if you're backpacking. Also space, because we take food, we remove the moisture. It gets much smaller. So finding storage space inside the home is really a lot uh, easier, I should say, can be easier with dehydrated food than some of your other canning jars. You're going to need a good support system, you know, heavily braced shelves, etc. Um, with dehydrated food, that's not an issue. There's freeze drying. So you do need to have a home freeze dryer in order to freeze dry, but that's another form of dehydration and freeze dried food will last even longer than uh, heat dehydrating, which is what most of us think about when you're thinking about a dehydrator. So, and it also allows you, freeze drying will allow you to dehydrate more food or different kinds of food than your heat dehydrator. So for example, you can dehydrate meat and it's going to be more shelf stable for longer than if you're using like a fan uh, type dehydrator. Um, you can do dairy, you can do eggs. So it allows you to do a lot more with a freeze dryer than you can do with your regular dehydrator. Usually it's fruits and vegetables. Um, if you're doing some forms of meat like jerky, you still should be keeping them in the fridge afterwards. So there's a lot more versatility, I should say, with a freeze dryer. Then there's fermenting. So we'll ferment. Um, the majority of people usually ferment vegetables. Some people ferment fruit. Um, I'll do like homemade vinegar, um, which is a form of, you know, fruit and uh, preserve it that way. But usually it's doing fermented pickles, um, sauerkraut, 
curtido, which is a Spanish version of sauerkraut, um, kimchi, all of those different types of things. And then you do need cold storage for them to slow down the fermentation process if you're looking for a long-term uh, thing. So if you have a garage in, during the winter and the fall months that's unheated or a crawl space or even a bedroom that you can keep 50 degrees Fahrenheit or cooler or a fridge. So if you have an extra fridge or you've got room in your fridge, that will keep for months. I'll make up a big batch of sauerkraut and whatnot in the fall, and then it will stay in the fridge. Uh, usually we've consumed it all by spring, but I've had it go at least six months, if not longer, and that's been fine. So it does require the, the fridge if you don't have another area or a basement or something like that that has those cooler temps. Um, but it does keep food. I mean, there'd be no way that we could have cabbage sitting in our fridge that wasn't fermented for six to nine months without going bad. So it does help prolong it. Um, there's salt curing. So for both meat, and then you can also do salt. I like to do um, basil and I will mix that with salt and have an herb salt and that will keep basil fresh tasting, of course, with the salt aspect but it really keeps the flavor much, much better than if you just dehydrate basil, which kind of loses most of its flavor. So that will stay in, the, I'll make up basil herb salt in the fall with the last of the basil crop and I'll have that almost until the next year. And then there's using alcohol. So that's where a lot of us, uh, fruitcake way back in the day, cause they would put the fruit in the alcohol in order to preserve it until Christmas came. And then they would bake that into their fruitcakes make those fruitcakes. And then because of the alcohol content, those would remain shelf stable much longer than a regular baked cake and with fruit. So there's the use of alcohol to help preserve food. Um, goodness, uh, root cellaring techniques. So that's where we talked about curing vegetables and then keeping them in a controlled or semi-controlled environment of with humidity and cooler temps. Some vegetables require cooler than others. And then I even overwinter in the ground here in the Pacific Northwest with a good mulch, things like potatoes. I will leave them in the ground all winter long um, and then just go out and pull them and check them. You just have to make sure that they don't freeze. So if we're getting a hard freeze or snow and making sure they're mulched really heavily, but they will last until it begins to warm up in the uh, spring till about April. And then we start to get warm enough then that they'll start to to rot, but they'll stay in that hibernation zone. I do the same thing with like Brussels sprouts. I leave Brussels sprouts in the garden all year long, all winter long, I should say, not all year. Um, so those are the, I'm trying to think, did I miss any? I think those are the, the majority, <laughs> the primary ways that we have to preserve food at home that will give longevity sometimes a year, sometimes a little bit shorter. Uh, so I'm curious with the potatoes, uh, you said they rot out once like the spring comes or the, the temperatures start to heat up. It seems like with mine, because we don't always pull up all of them, uh, they sprout. And so then I never have to replant them. They just sprout and they take off. Um, why would they not be sprouting and why would they be rotting instead? So combination, I should say. So we I dug up in March and the potatoes were completely fine. So that was the last harvestable amount of potatoes that I grew up in March. And then we got some of those oddly warm days here that we don't normally get in the spring, but it, it continued to warm up. And so some of them sprouted and some of them had rot spots on them. So where some of them, because they were whole potatoes, you know, in the ground thawing, there was also where once it got warmer, you know, I could see there was some damage from worms or whatnot. So if 
they had burrowed in there. That's my assumption, you know, where they had had, you know, some damage from insects and it opened it up. And then we were having that, those warmer temps and with a lot of the rain and then warm, it like half the potato would be rotted. So it wouldn't be something where you would really be able to harvest it to eat it. And so then when it rotted, it didn't sprout on that side. But then I did still have quite a few that did sprout and then did grow for me. Um, but I did have some loss on some of them too. So it was kind of a combination. It was probably the volume that I still had in the ground as well. It wasn't like, oh, I just had missed a couple or whatnot. I actually had full, I had two full hills that were the last ones that I, that we hadn't harvested yet. Cause I was making my way down the row and completely getting all of the potatoes out of, you know, one area before I moved down to the next. So I think it was probably just the sheer volume and it could have been the depth on some of them. Some of them were buried too deep to sprout. Perhaps I, yeah, I'm I'm not actually sure of all the exact nuances of of why some of them did what they did and others didn't. Got it. So let's jump back to canning. Um like you said last year it seemed like uh most canning supplies just kind of disappeared off the shelf. If you found some you were really lucky. So can you talk about what are some of the the key steps that people should make sure they always follow when it comes to canning? And what are some cautions that people need to be aware of in order to not get sick? Like if something wasn't canned properly. Yeah. And of all the forms of home food preservation, I would say probably canning and salt curing meat. You have the biggest danger of botulism, which can be a fatal form of food poisoning. It's actually a neurotoxin. Whereas salmonella and E. coli, you know, you, you probably get sick, throw up, you know, have some stomach discomfort possibly in severe cases be hospitalized, but it's not something that generally speaking that you're going to die of. But botulism, because it is a neurotoxin, you actually have to catch it um, in time. And then they have uh, like basically like an antidote that has to usually be shipped in. It's something that most hospitals and facilities don't just keep on hand. And then if you know you get that in time before too much damage has been done, then you will be okay. But you have to get that in time. If you have bot- get botulism and are not treated, it is usually fatal. Now, that being said, the cases of botulism are actually very, very low, but you do want to make sure that you are following with canning the safety precautions in order to avoid it. So it's very safe to can at home if you are doing it correctly. It's why we have all of the things that I'm going to be talking about here and the safety things that are in place is so that we can be sure that we are avoiding botulism and that we're processing things in a way that will kill the toxin so that it is safe. So there's a lot of sometimes fear around that when people first learn about botulism or hear about it. But as long as you're following these safety protocols, it is very safe to do. So the first thing that we need to talk about is understanding is botulism. We come in contact with botulism like all the time. So botulism spores are in the soil, they're in the air. We come in contact with them, but botulism will multiply and it's when those toxins multiply and then we can ingest them that we have issues. And so they multiply in a non-acidic anaerobic environment. So in a canning jar of non-acidic food without oxygen, they will multiply. There is, uh, botulinum is tasteless. You're not going to taste it. You're not going to smell it and you're not going to see it. So it's not like where we see, you know, things bubbling or mold growing, etc. Those are not signs of botulism. So we have to follow the safety precautions because we have no way of knowing if it's in the jar or not simply by look, taste and smell. 
So if a food is acidic, specifically 4.6 on the pH scale or lower, lower the number, more acidic it is, then it's too acidic for botulism to grow. So that's why we can safely water bath can um, fruits, pickled vegetables, provided we're using a tested brine recipe that has the correct ratio of vinegar to water to make sure that pH level is low enough. But relishes, pickled relishes, pickled vegetables, jams, jellies, fruit pie fillings, those types of things, fruit. That's why we can safely water bath can those at home without issue because of our pH level. Uh, now, I, I should say uh, there are a few fruits that are not acidic enough, like bananas, um, some melons, you have to add extra acidity um, and use a tested recipe, but most of your stone fruits and your berries were fine. So that means meats, vegetables, broth, soups, all of those other things, they are not acidic. So that's why we have to pressure can them. And with our pressure canning, uh, the only safe ways to can foods, I should say, is acidic foods can be done in a water bath canner where the jars are being immersed in boiling water and processed for a specific amount of time, or a steam canner. Steam canners were approved for water bath acidic recipes only um, a few years back now, like th I think about three years ago, they went through independent third-party testing and are approved for water bath recipes that have 30 minutes or lower processing time. If they require more processing time than that, there's not enough volume of water in the steam canner, the steam will run out. So that's why there's that time limit there. But everything else has to be pressure canned. And the reason it has to be pressure canned is because we don't have the acidity and botulism spores are not killed at the temperature of boiling water, which is 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, it doesn't matter if you boil the water for five hours or 30 minutes, it never gets above 212 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the temperature of boiling water. So pressure canning will get you a higher internal temperature at 10 pounds of pressure. It's 248 degrees Fahrenheit. And so that will penetrate the jar with the contents of the food. And if there's botulism spores, it will kill it. Now with pressure canning, it has to be for the full length of time for the tested food. So there was a case of a gentleman, this was like probably five or six years ago, maybe even a little bit further back in Oregon, who was pressure canning venison, but he cut the time short. So with pressure canning, if it says it has to pressure can for 40 minutes at 10 pounds of pressure, you can't pressure can it for 30 minutes at 10 pounds of pressure and then stop. It has to be that entire time at the full pounds of pressure in order to make sure that the botulism spores are actually killed. Um, so you have to use a pressure canner. You cannot use an Instapot to pressure can with, even though it does reach pressure. They went through third-party testing and all of the electric pressure canners that have went through third-party testing as of to date have failed because they don't actually keep the pounds of pressure the entire time. So they're not accurate enough for pressure canning. Um, that's a big one that comes up. People want to use their Instapot to pressure can, and they are not safe for pressure canning. Um, also, your altitude. So if you are 1,001 feet above sea level, then you'll be increasing the amount of time that you water bath process something, and you'll also be increasing your pounds of pressure. If you're 1,000 feet or lower, then you'll stay with the recipe as written, or if it's non-acidic foods in a pressure can, it'll be 10 pounds of pressure. So understanding altitude, uh, processing times, and the ways that we can safely process our canning jars, water bath, or pressure canning, 
and I have to say this because it comes up a lot, no oven canning. So even though an oven says it reaches 250 degrees Fahrenheit and a pressure canner is 248 degrees Fahrenheit, it's under pressure and that forces that heat, which is a wet heat, through the jars and the contents in a way you can't get in an oven. It's like if you have a hot pad on and short sleeves in the summer and you put a baking dish inside your oven, well, your skin isn't going to immediately burn. You keep your hand in there long enough. Yeah, well, but not immediately. But at the same token, a 212 degrees boiling water splashes your skin and it's an instant blister and burn. So that's the difference between why we don't use an oven to can, but we can use the pressure canner in order to can. So sorry, that was really long, but that's kind of the, the, the basics of the canning safety there in as much of a nutshell as I could provide. Yeah, no, that was fantastic because I know of people that don't follow specific directions when they can, and I've always wondered if that's a bad idea or not. So now I'm definitely a little cautious about what could happen with uh, the stuff coming from their stock because I don't really want botulism. No. Um, <laughs> so what? how fast does botulism kick in, and what are some of the initial signs? Yeah, that's a great question. So as far as like the canned food, the rule of thumb is um, you have 24 hours to reprocess something if it wasn't done correctly or it didn't seal right. Um, after that, it needs to go in the fridge or freezer. So that's just if someone's canned something, they're like, oh man, I don't know if I did that right or I think I forgot to do this or whatever. You got 24 hours reprocess or it needs to go in fridge and or freezer. You never want to put it on the shelf if you are unsure of what you did or you know you, you missed a step somewhere. Um, as far as the botulism developing in the jar, I like, I mean, obviously there's that 24-hour safety rule, right, of reprocessing, but it doesn't always develop that quickly. So sometimes you'll, you know, like, for example, the, the gentleman that I'm referencing that was in the newspaper stories and on the news when this happened, um, he had processed it and he had pulled it early. He didn't process it the whole time. And then he put it on the shelf and he had a jar that the seal came undone. And if you have a seal come undone, you never, ever eat it. The reason it came undone is because something happened and it is not safe. But unfortunately, he ate it because he didn't want it to go bad. And so the seal came undone. He ate the jar. So the first time he did that, I think it was like, uh, let's say a week. I don't remember exact days, but it was like a week after he had canned it. He had can canned it improperly, and then the seal broke, and then he decided to consume it. He was okay. Then I want to say like a few days later, maybe a couple weeks later, relatively short period of time, but some days went by, a second jar lost its seal, and then he ate that jar. That's the jar that he got the botulism from. So it did take a little bit of time to develop. Um, and then... I'm trying to think like signs are um, slurred speech, um, blur, like blurry vision. Um, it's a neurotoxin. So some neurological things. Um, those are the two that, that really come up. I'm not sure about upset stomach. I would actually have to read back over uh, your symptoms, which if you just Google botulism symptoms, they'll come up. But I know blurry vision, slurred speech um, are, are two of them. I'm sure that there's more, but those are the two I remember off the top of my head without doing a quick Google search myself. <laughs> yeah. So let's not get botulism. That sounds terrible. Uh, so with that canning, definitely there's a big process with it. So do you recommend like 
Are there specific classes people should be taking? Or how do you know if you're looking for like a recipe online that that recipe is legit and the process that they're using is safe? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So one is I actually have a free canning safety course where I go into in depth just because of this, because I'm like, people really need to understand the science behind it. Um, because a lot of times people are like, oh, well, you're not supposed to do this. But kind of like with cooking, a lot of times we're like, ah, oh, when you're baking, like a recipe is a guideline, right? Not so with canning. <laughs> Canning's the one, one place that's not true. And there's the science behind it. So I find that once people understand the science behind it and all of the safety things, uh, then they they follow them. And then you can look at a recipe online and you'll be able to judge for yourself, usually like, oh, this is safe or this isn't safe. So that being said, I do have a free canning uh, class that's completely free that you can go through that really focuses on the safety. Um, that's at melissakinoris.com forward slash safe canning. Um, but there is the ball book. So any canning, I shouldn't say any canning book with the amount of books that can be self-published that you can buy online. I can't say any canning book, but the ball book of canning, um, ball and the blue books are all safe tested sources. You want to make sure that your copy is dated 1996 or newer. And the reason for that is because in 1994, and sometimes with publication, right, something could come out, but the science was changed in 1994. So if you wait till 1996, you're going to be safe. So 1996 or newer, um, guidelines changed. They had updated testing that removed that you could pressure can summer squash by itself got removed. You can still safely pickle it, but you cannot or should not pressure can summer squash, winter squash is fine. Um, so that was one of the major updates that was done. Um, also doing like pie fillings or different recipes and using things like cornstarch or tapioca or flour was removed because they found on testing it created uneven hot spots and density. And so it would be too thick for the heat to evenly penetrate in order to kill certain bacteria. And then after it sat on the shelf for a few months, it would turn weepy and break down and it just wasn't good. So it's kind of both end product wise as well as safety. Um, so those were some of the major changes that were made and discovered in 1994 with some more testing. So ball or ball books, blue book of canning, 1996 or later publication dates are great. Um, the National Center of Home Food Preservation is an excellent website that you can use. Extension offices, so county extension offices um, have canning uh, recipes that are tested. Um, so those are, can be some great sources. And then if you purchase a pressure canner, your pressure canner will come with a manual that has pressure canning timetables and instructions and recipes. And of course, those are those are safe um, as well. And my website, I, I have to say, I, I follow safety. So you have to be careful with, with websites that are, you know, like personal websites or blogs, but mostkinoris.com, all of my, my recipes on there absolutely follow the tested times and procedures. So yeah, great question though. Perfect. Yep. Yep. We want to keep people doing canning safely. So uh, those are all great resources. And I'll have all those resources in the show notes at summitforwellness.com slash 154. And we'll have links to Melissa's um, safe uh, canning documents and course and all that type of stuff as well. Um, now let's dive into, you talked a little bit about freeze drying, dehydrating, 
let's talk a little bit about fermenting. So, uh, like you had mentioned sauerkrauts and stuff like that, you do fermenting, um, and in order to keep them from, uh, over fermenting, then you put it somewhere cool so that it slows down the fermentation process. So when you're first doing fermenting, do you have it out at like room temperature so that the, uh, ferment can get going and then do you slow it down with the cold or what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So fermenting is great because you don't have to have nearly the amount of equipment. So I feel like it's a really low barrier to enter. Um, so if you are doing uh, sauerkraut, then you actually just need to have some salt because you are going to be salting the cabbage. That's going to draw out the moisture to create your brine and it's going to be at room temperature. Um, and then the salt is also going to help keep the bad bacteria from developing while the good bacteria is getting established, which is what's actually creating your ferment, right? Um, so if you're doing a kraut type, you actually are just going to be using salt to cabbage ratio. If you are doing like a fermented pickle, which is my daughter's absolute favorite, she loves fermented pickles. So we cucumbers from the garden. Um, then you'll be creating a brine, which is amount of salt to water. Now, when you're doing a ferment, um, I recommend using something like a sea salt, um, Redmond real salt, not just a regular table salt that has like iodine or anti-caking agents in it um, or other additives like that. So uh, like a Celtic sea salt, um, pink Himalayan salt, like I said, Redmond real salt, some type of sea salt like that. It has uh, minerals in it, which is the only salts that I actually use, by the way, because they are better for your body, obviously. They've got more of those natural minerals in there that we all need and nutrients. Um, but it's also the same for the good bacteria that's going to be forming in your ferment. It needs good food to feed off of. So having those salts um, is helpful. I've never tried it with straight regular table salt, like just the white salt you know, that you buy from the grocery store. Um, so I would encourage you to use a good quality salt like that. Um, but you're just going to be mixing your salt with your water. We're on well water. We don't have chlorine. If you have chlorinated water, um, you can let that sit out for 24 hours to let that chlorine off gas. Um, you could probably use purchased water, but well water works just fine. Um, you're going to mix your salt in to that. So that's creating your brine. It's just salt and water. And then you pour that over your vegetables. And I like to use just a glass mason jar again. I do prefer to use glass with the, the salt so I don't use... Um, plastic is my vessel. Crocs also work really well. Um, so you're going to put that in there. If you have, you know, like I said, a, a glass bowl, a crock, something like that. The key is that the vegetable or the produce needs to be covered completely submerged underneath the brine. So be it the saltwater brine or the liquid that is seeped out from your sauerkraut, which is why if you're doing sauerkraut, you'll see like people will pound them or push it down really hard and then you'll use a weight. So the weight, you can buy weights like glass weights um, really easily, but you can also, I've seen where people have sterilized like rocks really good and just used a rock that would help weight and keep things down. I had some old glass my youngest is 12 and I have some glass baby food jars from way back in the day that I can fill with just a little bit of that brine and then put that down in there and that will act as a weight. Um, if you're doing like a bowl or a crock, you could just use a dinner plate and put put that down and then fill a glass with water so it and then set that on the glass plate um, to act as a weight to keep things beneath there. But you do have to keep everything beneath that brine level. Otherwise, if it's above air and exposed to oxygen, it will start to mold. So our key is um, room temperature beneath that brine. And depending on the heat of your room, I mean, it's kind of like sourdough 
in a way that warmer the temperature, the faster it's typically going to ferment. So if your home is on the really warm side, you know, it could be, th- you know, a couple of days, three, five days, and it's going to be established and fermented to the point where then you're going to want to slow it down and put it in the fridge. Um, if your home is really cold or you have a really cool summer, and also depending on your flavor preference, because the longer that you let that go, the it's if you've not had fermented food, especially like fermented pickles, it's not tangy like a vinegar pickle, but it does get tangier and more sour the longer that it goes. So depending on where your flavor preference is, um, I happen to like pickles that have a good punch. <laughs> and so I will let mine go up to like 10 days. Some krauts can go up to 21 days, like three weeks. So depending upon where you like it flavor preference wise, temperature of the room, But once it's reached where you're like, oh man, this has like really good flavor. I'm really happy with the way that this is tasting. Then you're going to want to move it to cold storage because if you keep it out at room temperature, it's just going to keep going and it's going to get to the point where it's too sour and too tangy and eventually it will completely break down. So moving it to that cold storage kind of, it will continue to very slowly ferment. So it will get over time a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger, but it's greatly reduced in how quickly it does that once it's moved to cold storage. What's your weirdest, most unusual thing that you've fermented? Oh, goodness. Well, I don't know about weirdest because people ferment a lot of things. But I Mm -hmm. love pickled beets. I love roasted beets. And so I thought, oh, my gosh, well, the way that we love the pickled cucumbers fermented wise, like I'm going to love fermented beets. Oh, they were horrible. Horrible. They tasted like dirt. I mean, I mean, and I like, I love yeah, I beets, that. but fermented wise, it was like eating salted dirt. I threw them out. I'm like, I can't even make the chickens eat these. Like, they're so gross. <laughs> so that was like my fail. Um, I've been told since, which I'm going to try this year, um, if you do them with like a carrot and some sweeter things, like some people will do the beets adding in like carrots, doing a combination with carrots and maybe even a little bit of an apple and that that will offset. So I'm going to try a very small jar just to give it a try. Um, But I should say that's probably been my only fail as in not that it went bad, but I just did not like it at all. Do you think the golden beets would be a little less dirt tasting compared to the red beets? That's what I'm going to try because I did the red ones and I've got goldens out in the garden that are about ready to pull. And so, yeah, I'm going to try that with with carrots. Um, and then I think I might put in a, a few little apple slices too, just to try to up that sweetness factor and see how they go. Um, have you done any like curing of meats? The curing of meats is something like we've done jerky, um, but I have not mm. done like sausages or, or you know, ham, like our own ham that I haven't done. Um, that just from the research I've done, like you have to make sure you're getting the right kind of salt and you're being very careful in the process and temperatures and monitoring the the water loss overall and all of that. And also to make sure that you do avoid botulism. And we, I just, I don't have a setup area like in order temperature wise, like controlled environment to do it once it's reached that point. Um, so it's just a, something I haven't done yet. It's on my bucket list, but I, I have not done it yet. So I don't have experience in that other than just doing like beef jerky. Yeah, I've always wondered because a lot of recipes always use uh, the nitrites and all that type of stuff. And I've always wondered if there's a way to avoid using that and still not get sick 
or if you have to use that stuff. So I guess if anyone out there knows, they can always comment on this video and let us know. Um, but yeah, if you know, yeah, I've, Melissa, then... The nitrate part is to avoid botulism. And I know I'm with you. Like We hear a lot yeah. about nitrate and trying to avoid it and all of that. Um, I should say we've done summer sausage, but I haven't done any like long-term curing of stuff where we've just, you know, made the summer sausage, made the jerky and then put it in the fridge and consumed it within, you know, a couple of weeks usually. So, yeah. But the nitrate for long term, yep. like ham and stuff, um, the research I've done says you have to use it or you're opening yourself up to botulism potential. Yeah, yeah. you're going to get sick. Um, now... I would say probably the last one we should talk about is root cellars. Are there certain depths that you have to go in order for that to be successful, or does it just have to be a certain temperature range? To our certain temperature range, because we use root cellar techniques, and I don't have a root cellar. I, we don't actually have a garage. I don't have a basement, etc. So for garlic, onions, um, winter squash, pumpkin, those types of things, they don't have to be kept as cold. And they don't have to have as much of uh, humidity as things like potatoes because potatoes will, you know, shrivel up if they don't have enough humidity and they'll start to sprout if they're too warm. So, you know, between 50 to 60, even 65 degrees Fahrenheit, really for your onions, um, winter squash. I've had the best luck with butternut and spaghetti squash will last the longest. Usually my pumpkins will go anywhere from two, sometimes four months. That's usually about the longevity of them. But I've had spaghetti squash go nine months and I've had butternut squash go definitely over six months. Um, and then my onions and my garlic, I still have from last year. It's been an, a complete year and they're just in our house, which ranges anywhere from 60. Normally like during the winter, um, I have them in a back room. So you definitely want to make sure that they're not in direct sunlight and they are away from a heat source. So we have them in a back closet that doesn't have any windows or direct light in there. I keep them, um, I actually keep them, um, I have them hanging on some lower shelves, not up too high because heat does rise. Um, so usually between 60 and about 72 degrees Fahrenheit will kind of fluctuate in that area of the house for the majority of the year, except of course, when we had that weird heat wave. Um, but those will last a full year. Now, the winter squash and the summer squash, I try to keep a little bit closer to 60. So I will store those on the floor because that's the coolest area in that same room. But check them like I have them in baskets and ventilated bins so that there's still airflow and checking on them. And they have to be cured. They're not going to store if you don't cure them first, I should say. They won't have that long-term storage. Um, so those you don't have to have any, really any type of death. And if you were to dig into the ground, those would still be items that you would be storing in a, in a basement or a root cellar that was dug down low then you would be storing them higher up on shelves or higher up in that room because that would be where the warmer temperatures were. Now for things like apples that you can store, you know, and potatoes that like, and you do have to be careful with some of the different um, off gases from some of your vegetables and fruits and not storing them next to one another. Uh, but those require higher humidity so that they don't shrivel up. Um, and also colder temperatures. You don't want them to freeze, but you do need to keep them closer in you know, that high 30 degrees Fahrenheit ultimately or really low 40s for long-term storage. Otherwise, they're going to start to rot um, or sprout in the case of potatoes, et cetera, and they're not going to be good for eating then. So it, it's crop dependent and then it you know, it, and humidity wise on those. But as far as depths, like most of the time for a root cellar, you know, people... It, it, you know, to be able to walk in there. So completely beneath ground. So I would say, you know, like, well, I guess if you want to hunch over five feet, but you know, like ideally six feet, if you're actually building a, a root cellar, 
but I've just left, like I said, the potatoes in the ground and those were only, I did mound them up extra. I'd say probably, oh gosh, with the mounding of the dirt that I had on them already and then the added like four, six inches of straw, probably like a foot down. Um, and we don't get like permafrost here. And if we get freezes, you know, maybe a few, three, four inches down, but rarely do we get frozen, you know, really, we don't have a hard, a deep frost line is what I'm trying to say here where we live. So it, it's going to depend too on your climate as well. But in the Pacific Northwest, that's been my experience with them. Yeah, we still have some spaghetti squash, which is 10 months old at this point. Nice. Um, but for the most part, most of them have rotted at this point that we haven't used. And then um, I kept one zucchini from last summer because I wanted to see how long it'll go. And it still seems perfect. Your zucchini does? Oh my yep, gosh. Just one. Though. Okay, where is it in the fridge? Where is it? It's in the garage. Wow. So I have all those in the garage. I'm super impressed. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I've never had zucchini last before. Yeah. And so I kept this one. It's kind of in a dark spot. It's um it's doesn't really heat up where it is. And I mean, that's one year. Of it staying in there. Okay, that's a that's a record as far as I know. You like need to submit that to the Guinness World Book of Records for zucchini. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I've never had zucchini last yeah, that long, so, I, so that's really cool. Yep, I've been pretty impressed with that. But yeah, we've had really good luck with spaghetti squash. Um, uh, we used to not cure it until I talked to you last year. So I think last year was the first time um, we tried curing it, and it seemed to work. Uh, either way for us. Awesome. But I think everyone's going to be a little bit different with that one. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I'm just in awe over the zucchini, man. I Yeah, I've never had zucchini last that long. So now, now I'm like, I'm like mm, maybe I need to test it again. Yep. Yeah, see if you can keep it around. Yeah. Well, I think for food uh, preservation purposes, I think we covered quite a bit. Uh, this is a really good starting point for people if they want to get started with preserving food. Now, in your book and on your website, you have plans available for people to um, kind of guesstimate how much food that they should be growing to last them in an, like an entire year. So um, they can take those resources and figure out how much food they would need, and then they can determine uh, out of that what they would need to preserve food. Um, so that is all available in the show notes and on your website and in your book. Um, and you also, like you said, you had your canning, uh, program course that people can go through as well. And everything is at melissaknorris.com. Is there any final things that you want to make sure that we cover when it comes to preserving food or homesteading in general? Yeah. You know, with the, the home food preservation, um, obviously like following, as we talked about with the canning, like understanding the method and what you need to know to stay safe. So doing a little bit of, of research on it, um, but really is preserving something, just get in, just like dive in. Sometimes we can get kind of paralyzed. And so I would recommend to just try something that you haven't done before because everybody's kind of at different spots. If you've never done any type of food preservation before, then just pick like one thing and pick something that your family enjoys and likes to eat. And I know that feels really obvious, but oftentimes we are like, oh, so-and-so is doing this, or I seen, you know, this online, like that looks really cool. And and then you do it, but it's not something that your family even likes or they've never had before. So 
I wouldn't preserve a ton of something that you've not either had in that form before. Like if you've never done fermented food, like don't take all of your cabbage and ferment 10 gallons worth of sauerkraut if you've never ate sauerkraut. And and so you don't even know if your family likes it, like do a small batch first, because if I had put all of my beets into those fermented beets, I would have been really mad at myself that then I hated it, right? So thinking about beforehand, the foods that your family likes to eat, the way that you like to consume them or you like to cook with them, like what you like to do with them afterwards, and then picking the form of food preservation because there are so many different ways that we can actually preserve food um, and picking a form that meets what your family likes to eat and will eat so that you're using what you put up. You're not just putting it up for the sake of peace of mind, which we do have with food preservation is knowing that you have food there if you need it. Uh, But the goal is to actually consume it and to use it. So make sure that you're giving that a little bit of thought before moving ahead. Awesome. Very good advice. Yeah, if you um, end up wasting all the food because you didn't prepare it in a way that's tasty for you, that would that'd be a really big bummer. Yeah. <laughs> well, Melissa, thank you so much for once again coming onto the show. I love chatting with you. You have just tons of knowledge around homesteading and how to prepare food and be able to eat in very healthy ways. And I just really appreciate everything that you're doing. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me on. I always enjoy our time together too. And and learning, hearing what you're doing, like, see, I learned, I learned stuff today too. So thank you. Wasn't that just an awesome episode with Melissa? I love having her on the show because she just brings so much valuable information to the gardening and uh, food growing world. And if you've ever checked out her podcast and her YouTube channel. She's got so many good resources to go check out over there. But if you want to join in any of her canning classes or her gardening 101 classes or anything like that, um, she has worksheets on how to grow a year's worth of food, etc. Then in our show notes at summitforwellness.com slash 154, we have links to all of those. And that just helps to support our show a little bit. If you just go directly to her website, you can find the same resources, but if you go through our links, it helps the show out. Now, once again, we have honey coming up for sale. So if you would like honey, then make sure to get onto our pre-order list. Go on over to mountainsideherbals.com and you will be able to see all the raw honey that is available there. We are only taking 100 pre-orders. Those will be guaranteed. And then after that, whatever we harvest is fair game for everybody. So again, head on over to mountainsideherbals.com to get on the pre-order list. Other than that, that is it for today. We will see you in the next episode. And until then, keep climbing to the peak of your health.